My podcast lecture is on the theme, Archaeology and the Monument, on two embattled sites of history and memory in contemporary India. The two sites are those of Ayodhya, where a brand new Ram temple is about to be built on the ruins of a demolished mosque. And the second site is Bodhgaya, uh, which where a, a Buddhist monument stands, which is actually a modern reconstruction of an archaeological ruin. Now, the lecture will be in two parts. The first part will deal with Ayodhya, which is really back in the eye of attention. And the second part will deal with Bodhgaya, and there'll be a conclusion tying the two together. Let me begin with a general introduction to the theme. The historical and archaeological monument, as we know it today, is largely a product of colonial Indian history, of a series of institutional interventions and mediations that radically recast the value and meaning of architectural remains of the past. Over the 19th century, large numbers of India's shrines, temples, tombs, and mosques, some abandoned and long fallen into disuse, other still active centers of worship, were endowed with a new status as historical monuments. What such a designation involved was not just the infusion of new scholarly meanings and values over these structures, but also the staking of an official institutional bid for the custody of these, for their protection against contending claimants, the authentication of their true past, and their preservation as surviving relics of those historical periods. This lecture is drawn from the last chapter of my book, Monuments, Objects, Histories, Institutions of Art in Colonial and Post-Colonial India, which goes back several years now. The book was published in 2004. This last chapter juxtaposed the two cases of the fierce battles over the ancient sites of Bodhgaya and Ayodhya that were fought out over different frames of time in the past and present as instances of the process of the making and unmaking of monuments in colonial India. So in the case of Ayodhya and Bodhgaya, we have two contrasting scenarios. In one case of a passage from a standing mosque to a demolished site, to a site that was being fought over by archaeologists to prove or disprove the existence of a prior temple beneath the mosque. And in Bodhgaya, we have a different passage over the end of the 19th and early 20th century from a ruin into an archaeologically remade monument that freshly becomes a site of dispute between the Hindu Shaivite Mahants who had taken over the site and the new Buddhist claimants over the structure. So I look at the way certain religious structures would acquire while others would forfeit their status as monuments, bringing to the fore the kind of contrary claims and prerogatives that came into play. One primary line of divide that repeatedly surfaces in the modern histories of these monuments, on one hand, the demolished structure of the Babri Masjid at Ayodhya, and on the other hand, the restored temple at Bodhgaya, is a conflict between public claims and rights and the state's prerogative of custody, possession, and care. 
This divide we find is played out in differing ways through firstly, the activation of new kinds of what we may call imagined religious communities and their appropriative devotional practices around sacred sites and monuments. And secondly, the struggle for demarcation of spheres of state control and archeological jurisdiction around these same spaces. There was clearly no smooth or clear cut trajectory by which the secular logic of history and archeology span could establish their sway over the many combative sacred domains of belief and worship. The archeological restitution of monuments came to be deeply implicated, sometimes as accomplice, more often as an ineffective contender in the politics of the religious reinvention of holy sites in modern India. Ayodhya and Bodhgaya present two powerful instances of the way prior histories of Islamic and Hindu infiltration of these sites are made the occasion for latter-day militant campaigns for the rightful repossession of these spaces by newly mobilized communities of Hindus in the case of Ayodhya and Buddhists in the case of Bodhgaya. One of my primary concerns has been with the positioning of archaeology as a discipline and as an institution in the virulent controversies that came to engulf these sites and their monuments. It could be argued that, that at both these sites, in the reconstruction and rehabilitation of the shrine at Bodhgaya, and even more pointedly, in the losing tussle of the mosque against the proposed temple at Ayodhya, archaeology was deployed not just as part of a wider battle, rather it helped to determine the nature of the battlefield itself. In looking closely at the kinds of knowledges and resolutions that are generated by scholars and officials, I wish to particularly probe the limits and tensions of archaeological jurisdiction. To move between these two disputed sites of Ayodhya and Bodhgaya from the colonial period into the Ram Janmabhumi movement of the past decades is to confront, among other things, the failure of legislation and state control and the increasingly beleaguered zones of archaeological truths and facts. I will now go on to the section on Ayodhya. Whereas the Ram Temple has now become a fait accompli with the Supreme Court verdict clearing the handover of the land to precisely those who were responsible for the demolition of the mosque for that crime. It is the handing over of precisely that land that has enabled now the project of the temple to come to fruition. And it's worthwhile, therefore, clocking back to the period when the movement was at its height uh, to look at the nature of the debate that was being played out. It is only during the 1980s that the small temple town of Ayodhya, situated around six miles from the city of Faisabad in eastern Uttar Pradesh, and a 16th century Mughal mosque situated there, became the focal point of the most violent of national conflicts. The sacred town had a long-standing mythological association as the birthplace of Lord Rama. The mosque, widely referred to as the Babri Masjid, built in 1528 by Mir Baki, a noble in the Mughal Emperor Baba's court, acquired a more recent notoriety then 
as a structure that is said to have been erected after the destruction of an ancient Ram temple that was said to have occupied the same site. The 1990s, the late 1980s and 90s saw the orchestration of virulent claims to the existence of a prior Ram Janmabhumi Mandir at the very site of the masjid and a campaign for its reconstruction. These claims, as we now well know, were at the heart of the resurgent right-wing Hindu for politics of India, asserted most strongly by a cluster of militant ultra-Hindu organizations, the most powerful of these being the Rashtriya Sayamsevak Sangh, the RSS, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, the VHP, the Bajrang Dal, and the common electoral face that was represented of these parties of the Bharatiya Janata Party or the BJP. Since 1989-90, activists and volunteers of these organizations converged around the site with the single point agenda of liberating this true and only birthplace of Ram. Liberation to them meant nothing short of bringing down the existing structure of the Babri Masjid to make way for the new Ram Janmabhumi Mandir, the foundation for which had already been ceremonially laid in the adjoining premises of the mosque in November 1989. It is this agenda which culminated in the demolition of the mosque on 6 December 1992. No other dispute has aroused as much frenzy, fanaticism and alarm in independent India as this Ram Janmabhumi Babri Masjid controversy. Its beginnings can be traced back to various points of time depending on the positions at stake. Historians are generally of the consensus that the contending claims on the site of the masjid surfaced no earlier than the mid-19th century, and that the first sparks of violence can be traced back to events that occurred between 1853 and 1855, when the Hanumangari Temple in Ayodhya was occupied by a sect of Muslims under similar allegations that this temple had supplanted a mosque, provoking a retaliatory takeover by the temple priest of the Hanumangari of a portion of the Babri Masjid compound. The colonial government's move of fencing off and demarcating separate places of worship for Hindus and Muslims within the premises of the masjid met with repeated appeals and contestations from both communities. The present phase of the controversy is marked out most directly by events that followed on the nation's independence. The surreptitious installation of an idol of infant Ram inside the mosque on the night of December 22, 23, 1949, claimed ever since as a miraculous manifestation of Ram Lalla, led to the government's decision, the new independent Indian government's decision to lock the disputed premises, barring all worship within it. The motive of the lock came to figure prominently in the agitation launched soon afterwards by the VHP for the recovery of the sacred site for Hindu worship. And it was the government's order, the Congress regime's order for the opening up of the locks in February 1986, giving in to the Hindu demands, Hindutva demands for free access to the shrine which stands out as the decisive turn, the one treacherous act that turned the tide in favor of the Ram Janmabhumi movement. Thereafter, the Indian state can be seen as playing a 
increasingly ineffectual and passive, if not an openly complicit role in the torrent of events and agitations at Ayodhya, leading to the debacle of 6 December 1992, the destruction of the mosque. It is not just the scenario of the political mobilization of communal hostilities that has been a source of consternation. An equal cause of anxiety is the manner in which the Ram Janmabhumi demands came to be presented, repeatedly deploying the authority of history and archaeology and their modes of verification. Legend and faith came to acquire the armor of historicity presenting a series of conjectures as undisputed facts. So the certainty that the present-day Ayodhya is the historical birthplace of Lord Rama passed into the certainty that there was a 10th or 11th century Vaishnava temple commemorating the birthplace site. Both of these then building up to the so-called hard fact that this temple was demolished in the 16th century to make way for the Babri Masjid. Such invocation of facts, and here facts will appear in quotes, made it imperative for a camp of left liberal secular historians to attack these certitudes, to riddle them with doubts and counterfacts in order to recuperate the fields of archaeology and history from their political misuse. Now, my intention in this essay is neither to reconstruct the course and politics of this widely written about Ayodhya controversy, nor to test the relative truth of the claims and counterclaims that came to circulate around the disputed site. My interest lay primarily in the terms and rhetoric of the debate and the wider question this raised about the status of evidence and the nature of knowledge in disciplines like archaeology. Over the past two decades, we've seen how, in fact, now three decades, because really, it's really from the 90s that this unfolded, so we're dealing with three decades. The onus of proving or disproving the remains of a destroyed temple beneath the now demolished mosque came to devolve more and more on the discipline of archaeology, on the elaboration of its excavation methods and analytical techniques. In dealing with the archaeological debate that brewed around the site of Ayodhya from the late 80s through the 1990s, I have found it necessary to deliberately disengage form from content, rhetoric from evidence. This helps to silhouette the way the discipline of archaeology pushed against the wall in this controversy staked its scientificity and expertise, and labored to police the boundaries of its professional domain. Such an emphasis on the terms and rhetoric of the debate also helps to place the case of Ayodhya in a larger historical frame, where we find similar battles over the custody of monuments unfolding in other spaces and times, something we will be returning to in the second part of the essay. I come to a section which I call a threatened site, a threatened science, where I begin with the theme of the violation of truth and objective knowledge that occurred at Ayodhya. When on December 6, 1992, 
the Ram Janmabhumi volunteers and supporters raised the Babri Masjid, what they destroyed was much more than an old historical mosque. The mosque, in any case, had been fairly insignificant as a religious or historical structure. But its rubble became the symbol of the utmost violence, the deepest transgression of religion and history in modern India. The day came to be inscribed as the blackest, one of the blackest days in national history. The frenzied act violated not just Muslim sentiments, but more importantly, a century long tradition of historical and archeological conservation. Tread, treading over the cardinal governmental principle that an old monument, whether it be living or deserted, even when it belonged to a particular religious community, remained in the last count the cultural property and heritage of India. The raising of the mosque then became a betrayal of this very principle of modernity and historical conservation and the status of these monuments as the cultural property of the nation. And the VHB's unrestrained agenda for constructing the Ram Temple on this very site of the demolition of the mosque has been seen as it can be seen as an open defeat of the Republic's laws and principles, despite which, of course, the temple is now being built. Of the many dangers that these events epitomized, not the least was the perceived threats to the academic profession of the historian and the archaeologist, to the integrity of the investigative methods and the objectivity of their knowledges. Where archaeology was concerned, the debate on the Ramjan Mabhumi Babri Masjid brought on, as seldom before, a defense of the scientificity, specialization, and authority of the disciplinary field. It is this issue, its projections and tensions, its positions and dispositions, which I wish to foreground within the body of the debate. From the start, it's interesting to see how the VHB's demand for a Ram temple rested on a mobilization of a mass of literary, historical, archeological, and judicial evidence which it compiled and formally presented to the government of India in December 1990. Hence arose the equally urgent need to refute and challenge what was falsely presented as incontrovertible proof, a task taken up in right earnest, first by the Center for Historical Studies of Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi, in 1989. The fight, it was stressed by these historians, had to be conducted on the very lines laid down by the opponents. The very form of the presentation of the Ramjan Muhumi demand as a historically and archaeologically testifiable thesis made proof a central element in the debate. For the VHP, however, the historicity of the figure of Lord Ram or the proof of his birth at the present day Ayodhya were hardly relevant questions by what they said were international standards prevalent in this kind of issue. It raised, for instance, the sites, the cases of the Dome of the Rock at Jerusalem, where it said no one demands evidence for the sacredness of these sites, and no one questions the Christian's right to this holy site. It set out instead to prove the following. One, that the long tradition of worship in this town by Ram devotees. Two, the existence of an earlier Vaishnava temple at the very spot of the Babri Masjid. And three, 
the fact of the demolition of this temple in 1528 by Mead Bucky, assimilating some of its parts within the mosque that was constructed in its place. So a series of archaeological and art historical evidence came to be mobilized as part of a larger body of documentary evidence, which was presented under the three heads of Hindu testimony, Muslim testimony, and European accounts in the document presented by the VHP. While the first category cited the reference to Ayodhya from a vast array of Sanskrit literary epic and scriptural texts, the Muslim and the European testimonies compiled quotations from a lineup of writers from Abul Fazl in the 16th century through 19th century British travelers, surveyors, and gazetteers to two Dutch and Belgian scholars writing on Ayodhya in the 1980s. Against this array of sources, archaeology was assigned the task of producing the most concrete on-the-spot evidence of the material remnants of the temple beneath the mosque. The evidence here has came to center around both a scrutiny of the standing structure and a discovery of hidden undersurface traces. The case built itself around what was seen by these, the VHP camp as the obvious architectural incongruity of a series of black schist stone pillars carved with figural and ornamental motives supporting certain parts of the mosque. The stone structure and carvings of these pillars were all traced to a regional Hindu temple of roughly the 10th to 11th century of, I quote, the late Pratihara or Gahadwala style. The case then moved underground to reveal, among other finds, rows of burned brick pillar bases of the same directional alignment as the pillars above, different floor bases where the topmost mosque floor level could be strategically distinguished from earlier pre-mosque layers, and a variety of Islamic glazeware shirts dated between the 13th and 15th century. These are the evidences presented by the document presented by the VHP. Later in 1992, in the course of the demolition of the masjid, a team of scholars were said to have laid claim to a discovery of a new hoard of sandstone sculptures and architectural fragments found deposited in a pit beneath the floor levels a hope that was directly identified again with a demolished Hindu temple complex at the site. Taken together, the archaeological evidence from Ayodhya, the standing stone pillars, the excavated pillar bases and floor levels, and the hidden deposit of stone sculptures was offered by the VHP document as conclusive proof of the existence of a prior temple, its demolition, and its selective incorporation within the Babri Masjid. Now, it is precisely this style of argument, this attempt to mix up what on one hand they say was a divine and historical belief that this was the birthplace of Ram, with archaeological historical proof that made this pro-Mimbid thesis a subject of huge contention. Let us identify some of the main premises of the parallel anti-Mandir campaign that took off almost at the same time that this document was presented to the government. I quote here from a statement by the leading historian of ancient India, Romila Thapur, where she writes, what is at issue 
is the attempt to give historicity to what began as a belief. Whereas anyone has a right to his or her beliefs, the same cannot be held for a claim to historicity. Such a claim has to be examined in terms of the evidence and it has to be discussed by professionals. Historicity cannot be established in a hurry and furthermore has always to be viewed in the context of possible doubt. Archaeology is not a magic wand which in a matter of moments can conjure up the required evidence. This statement underlined the moot issues of the counter posture. The statement sifted out history from belief, objective from motivated scholarship, the properly brewed methods from their instant varieties. It also marked out the exclusivity of the professional domain, its singular responsibility of authenticating the past and the long gestation of its working methods. We could add to this statement of Romila Thapar, the response of her archeologist colleague, Shirin Ratnagar, seeking to protect the autonomy of the discipline of archeology span against the Philistinism of non-specialist outsiders, as she called them. She wrote, the professional disgrace that Indian archeology span led itself into concerning Ayodhya is not only because of a diabolical political conspiracy. There's been a general unconcern with the method and even with the scope of the subject. This has led the field open for the Mofasal Neta to misappropriate available information with all its attendant vulgarity. Taken together, these responses provide a full-blown sense of violated knowledge and endangered science. This scholarly body found it important to immediately contest first and foremost the kind of procedures that were employed at Ayodhya in search of evidence for a pre-existing temple and to challenge their very status as archeological evidence. The allegations have operated at a different level. To begin with, and here I'm referring to a tract that was brought out by an archeologist D. Mundell called Archeology as Evidence, looking at the fallout of the, between archeologists over the nature of evidence at the site of Ayodhya. To begin with, this counter lobby of left liberal secular historians posed an inconsistency between the archaeologist Bibila's first published reports from his archaeological excavations of 1976-1977 and the later publication of various new archaeological discoveries in 1992 as direct proof of the Mandir thesis. So they contrast Bibila's Ayodhya report of 76-77 with the one of 1992. They distinguish a professional report of an eminent scholar from the later, what they call flagrantly unprofessional projections that came nonetheless in the guise of archeology span from a historian's forum. In the context of the new archeological discoveries that the VHB claimed of 1992, the profession confronted with acute consternation the phenomenon of what it called demolition of voodoo archaeology, in which the leveling of land by the government and the demolition of the mosque by a frenzied mob magically threw up incontrovertible evidence for scholars. The problem was seen to lie in the way professional archaeologists, those who clearly knew better, attempted to convince a gullible public, those who knew no better, that this was true archaeology. 
The reaction was to both seal off the disciplinary domain from deviants and outsiders and attempt to create a new corrected domain of public knowledge. The most crucial plank of the archaeological critique was a questioning of excavation methods and a careful screening of what constituted evidence in archaeology. The ultimate concern was with distinguishing finds from evidence, with establishing that very few of the archaeological finds at Ayodhya could classify as evidence, and with arguing the impossibility of anything like incontrovertible evidence in archaeology. Setting out to question each of these reported discoveries, the criticisms have tended to converge around a single issue, that of stratigraphic context, the constitutive core of the present-day science of archaeology. The task was to return every material remnant to its embedded location within the excavated soil strata. For in this stratigraphic reconstruction, it was argued, lay the clue to the relative chronology and interrelationship of the different artifacts that were said to have been excavated. It is through such stratigraphic analysis that the conclusions about the pillar bases were overturned with the following counter deductions. Firstly, that the various remnants claimed to be vestiges of the pillar bases were not contemporaneous, but belonged to at least five different sequential structural phases. Two, that the so-called pillar bases were most probably remnant portions of walls from these different phases. And three, that even if these were assumed to be pillar bases of temple structures, they were constructed of brick paths laid so haphazardly that they seemed incapable of bearing the large load of the stone pillars above. So it was argued that there was nothing about these archaeological finds to suggest even in a circumstantial manner that they were part of any single structure, leave alone a pillar temple from the 11th century. The invocation of stratigraphy became all the more pointed with regard to the discovered, apparent discovered hoard of stone sculptures. Faulty digging in the course of a land leveling operation had led inevitably to a confusion of soil layers, a mix up of sequences, and the complete loss of the stratigraphic context of the objects, thus denuding them of any value as evidence. These stone sculptures were branded by D. Mundell as contaminated with modern post-depositional debris. Even if their artistic and iconographic features could be productively analyzed, they argued these remain denuded of archaeological value as evidence. For the latter is grounded centrally in fidelity to stratigraphy and proper excavation procedure. The point was made that present-day archaeologists Primary concern is with excavated material rather than with overground standing structures. All surface material, it was stressed, I quote, is required to be consistent with excavated material if it has to qualify as evidence. Systematically excavated material alone is conclusive. This invalidated the elaborate conclusions drawn around the black stone pillars that were discovered under the base of the mosque. And it reduced to secondary status much of the iconographic analysis of the material from the suspect hole. So in retrospect, this emphasis of stratigraphy can be seen to be integral to the way archaeology had been progressively recast as a hard science in post-independence India. And 
much of the controversy over the so-called remains of a temple beneath the demolished mosque brought up again the concerns with defending the scientificity of the discipline, its status as a hard science, and its need to protect itself and remove the discipline from all the extra archaeological wrangling of the Ram Janmokumi movement. Just as each excavated remnant was arduously relocated in a stratigraphic context in the pamphlet put out by D. Mandal, similarly, the discipline itself now retreated into its own ingrown exclusive sphere of methods and expertise. In this section called The Limits of the Science, The Assault of Mythic Histories, I ask, but where did this leave us, this counter kind of solid archaeological response that was provided? How, where did this leave us vis-a-vis -vis the continuing Ayodhya dispute? Evidence and refutations kept piling up. And on each of these counter postures, there were responses and fresh proofs offered by the Ram Janbogumi protagonists. Each criticism and allegation came to be matched by a set of reverse charges by the VHP, which stuck firm to their grounds of historical and archaeological practicity. On either side, the recourse to the languages of history and archaeology came to expose a problem whose dimensions clearly lay outside their frame. To put it starkly, one could say that the proof for or against the destroyed temple beneath the mosque increasingly became quite irrelevant to the passions and politics that were generated around Ayodhya. As we see today, that nobody now talks about archaeological evidence or lack of evidence any longer. Still, there was no doing away with the need for proof in a national site that had been so ineluctably engulfed by history. However ineffectual the academic debate, Ayodhya could no longer be figured outside history as what the French scholar Pierre Nora called a pure space of memory. It had slipped once and for all outside a people's collective memory into the nation's historical and pedagogical memory. I'd like to look at the play of historical memory around Ayodhya in this section. While the Ram Janmabhumi debate confronted us with a pointed display of archaeological reasoning and expertise, it also brought home a deeper fundamental tension that resided within the attitude to such historical moments. The tension stemmed from an unresolved schism between the archaeological valuation of mon monuments and their various alternative configurations, whether in popular collective memory or, as we see in the VHP endeavor, in the nation's freshly manufactured memory. Such disputed sites clearly embrace a whole sphere of belief imaginings and residual meanings that lie beyond the bounds of scientific knowledge. What is seen as extra archaeological invariably intrudes on the domain of archaeology to defeat the intricacies of its argument. History and its pedagogic accoutrements, we find, have powerfully infiltrated this domain of popular memory at a site like Ayodhya. We saw this in the way 
and the degree to which the popular legends of Ayodhya as the Janmasthan came to be shot through with modes of reasoning and forms of dissemination of modern day histories. In a proliferation of new popular Hindu histories of Ayodhya, what for myths and metaphors came to be metamorphosized as true history. And there's a very interesting article written on these popular Hindu histories of Ayodhya by Gyanendra Pandey. These popular historical accounts of Ayodhya shared with the historical discipline the core claims to real and comprehensive truth. At the same time, they remained essentially ahistorical in the way verities of fact were bolstered by the certainties of belief, in the way legends were supported by the scientific apparatus of date statistics and geographical details. Academic historians have increasingly recognized the need to take seriously the many mythological histories of Ram Janmabhumi to understand how myth, history, and communal politics interrelated in complex ways. They also realized that historical consciousness, even when fairly organized, was by no means a monopoly of professional historians alone. And this is something we are looking around us and watching all the time, but exist within a larger public domain. Across both camps, the notion of popular belief remained a crucial nodal point of the dispute, the popular figuring both as a means of legitimization of positions and as a prime target of address. The domain of myth and memory, I argue, could no longer be distinctly figured as a space on the outside of history and archaeology, as say Romila Thapar and Shiri Ratnagar argued. Rather, it came to exist as a neither zone within the invoked fields of history and archaeology, disputing the proprieties of its methods and procedures, challenging their evidentiary logic, refusing to keep apart proven fact from imagined truths. The professional practitioners of the discipline tried to disqualify such knowledges as neither proper history nor archaeology as they continued to do so against the various mythic histories that are being floated. But selectively assuming the colors of history, these illegitimate intruders hover at the boundaries of the discipline, confronting them with their own inbuilt limits. We can see archaeology as a clear victim of such a process in the 1990s. Repeatedly, archaeology was dragged out of its self-enclosed scholarly sphere onto a larger public stage, where it was made to play out its expertise for a lay and inevitably inappropriate audience. In the process, we saw the corpus of scientific knowledge, knowledge battling to assert itself vis-a-vis -a, -vis a welter of counter meanings and associations rallied around sacred sites. It can be argued that archaeology, even when it was most flamboyantly used in defense of the Ram Janmabhumi claims, hardly figured in the main body of Hindutva discourse and the kind of popular Hindu histories of Ayodhya nurtured. The pro-Mandit thesis itself provided a stark example of the way archaeology defeated itself through its own terms. If we were to take a strictly archaeological perspective on this issue, it could well be argued that even the incontrovertible proof of a de destroyed Vaishnava temple beneath the Babri Masjid could not in any way justify the raising of a 16th century mosque. For such an action negated one of the archaeology's fundamental constitutive principles, that of historical conservation, 
enshrined in a series of acts and statutes in colonial and independent India. And because their temple remains beneath mosques, as well as Buddhist remains beneath Hindu edifices throughout India, this position would render illegitimate by the same logic large numbers of the country's historical monuments that lie in the treasured custody of the archaeological survey. On the other hand, if we were to take a political and religious perspective on the dispute, what we meet headlong are a series of convictions and claims that have little to do with excavated finds or their arduous analysis. The issue becomes one of a perceived reversal by Hindus of a historical injustice, of a physical resting of a long lost possession, an imagined Ram temple that is the birthright of an equally imagined community of Hindus. And all histories of Ayodhya are woven around this one narrative of past dispossession and present rectitude. So the whole history of the temple town of Ayodhya from ancient times to, to the present comes to center on a single grand monument at the holy site of the Janmasthan and the singular relentless struggle of the Hindus to liberate this site from its so-called Muslim appropriators. Everything over here in these popular histories from the river Saryu to the mute stone artifacts were made to stand witness to the singular tale of the town's Rakta Ranjit Itihas, a history colored in blood. These narratives kept proliferating in the 1990s while archaeologists were left wrangling over whether any of the finds in the Ayodhya trenches could classify as conclusive evidence of a demolished temple. And while historians went to lengths to show that the present-day Ayodhya could not be equated with the ancient mythical city, or that the claimed Janmabhumi site was in all prob probability a place of Buddhist religious establishment. Recovering this objective past of Ayodhya and returning each excavated find to its stratigraphic context clearly failed to dislodge these other popular histories or to keep at bay their explosive consequences. These confrontations and failings of archaeology come to us as part of a long history. Though they were never outlined with such sharpness before, the discipline ever since its inception in colonial India has had to contend with similar tensions and oppositions both within and outside these boundaries. So in the next section of the lecture, we'll be moving from Ayodhya to the positions and practices of archaeology in the late 19th century and returning and going back to another site of contention which is that of Portman.